0: In February 2021, the Biden administration began the process to unwind the Migrant Protection Protocols Policy, also known as Remain in Mexico. At the South Texas border, the program had pushed thousands of migrants into a makeshift refugee encampment in Matamoros, Mexico. In the 10 days following an announcement to close the encampment, the United Nations began a humanitarian operation that unified the efforts of residents of the encampment, U.S.-based grassroots advocates, and local attorneys to safely process everyone into the United States. I am Laura Pena attorney, advocate, born and raised in the Rio Grande Valley. And I'll be your guide as we journey through Valle de Sueños, Valley of Dreams. In this episode, we explore the first day of the humanitarian effort in Matamoros and Brownsville. That fateful day, 27 people were chosen to be the first to realize the dream of finally entering the United States to seek protection and start a new life. This story is critical now more than ever. For the first time in two years, a judge has ordered that the entire US-Mexico border reopen after being closed under a public health emergency order. On December 21st, 2022, maybe even after you're hearing this podcast, the US government will be ending this policy known as Title 42. The policy shuttered the border and expelled hundreds of thousands of migrants back to dangerous conditions in Mexico or unilaterally expelled them to their home countries. This story is one example of what can happen when there is political will, international cooperation, and an engaged bi-national border community. As you listen to these stories, think about scaling this cocktail of priorities. Think about a vision for a better, more dignified and welcoming border that centers humanity. What transpired in February 2021 is less than perfect, but offers us insight into potential solutions to our migration challenges at the border. Prologue. It was Wednesday, February 24th, 2021, around 10 p.m. I was at home. I remember the miraculous lifting of my dog-tired spirit and weary body. I felt an anxious excitement. It was such a foreign feeling to possess after four years of horrifying policies targeting people in the borderlands. The next morning, I would be visiting the refugee encampment in Matamoros, Mexico. It was a day that would mark the beginning of the end. I looked over my notes one last time and thought about what had brought me home in the first place. After nearly 20 years in Washington, D.C. and California, I returned to my small border community in South Texas to try and make a difference. As my dogs curled up at my feet, I hoped that tomorrow would be an opportunity to make that difference in at least one migrant refugee community.
1: We were overjoyed that we were going to at last see our friends, that we were going to see them on our soil.
0: That is Andrea Rudnick from Team Brownsville. Team Brownsville is a grassroots humanitarian aid organization
1: founded by a group of local teachers. I know the people in the encampment felt, they were incredibly excited. It was just a lot of partying, a lot of excitement, a lot of joy.
0: Matamoros is the second largest city in the state of Tamaulipas, Mexico, with a population more than double the size of its U.S. sister city, Brownsville, Texas. Matamoros and Brownsville are so close in proximity to each other that sometimes when I ride my bicycle along the river I can smell the food coming from Matamoros' homes, hear kids yelling as they play, and see laundry drying in the wind. But for the massive intrusion of a border wall, the Rio Grande River, or Rio Bravo, flows through one binational community. As the border began to tighten in the mid-1990s, our binational community began seeing divisions slowly percolate on both sides of the river. By 2010, crime and insecurity had become so ubiquitous in Matamoros that many residents of the city opted to move to the U.S. side in Brownsville. Migration patterns along the border had always ebbed and flowed, but the harmful treatment of migrants took a turn for the worse under Donald Trump.
2: There is a growing humanitarian and security crisis at our southern border. Every day, Customs and Border Patrol agents encounter thousands of illegal immigrants trying to enter our country. We are out of space to hold them, and we have no way to promptly return them back home to their country. My administration has presented Congress with a detailed proposal to secure the border and stop the criminal gangs, drug smugglers, and human traffickers. This is the tragic reality of illegal immigration that I am determined
0: Under the law, people seeking asylum at official ports of entry are allowed to have their claim heard in the safety of the U.S. But just months after the images of parents and children being violently separated at the border had shocked the collective consciousness of Americans, the Trump administration rolled out yet another assault on immigrant lives. And they did it on a technicality. The Immigration and Nationality Act is a set of federal laws that govern immigration in the United States. There's an obscure line in the Fast-Track Deportations section that states, an official may return a non-citizen to foreign territory contiguous to the United States. In this case, Mexico. Because, let's be honest, nobody in the Trump administration was worried about immigrants coming from Canada. But let's focus on the most important word in that line. May may return a non-citizen not must not shall may the word itself is permissive meaning optional not mandatory by subverting that narrow discretionary language the trump administration built an entirely new deportation system that penalized migrants by forcibly returning only spanish-speaking non-citizens entering from mexico The policy was called the Migrant Protection Protocols and became more widely known as Remain in Mexico. This policy forced thousands of people to wait months between their asylum hearings. Over the course of nearly two years, more than 68,000 migrants were sent back to Mexico without food, shelter, or any regard for their safety. Along the river in Matamoros, hundreds of men, women, and children built lives in a small, tent city, trying their best to create a sense of safety and normalcy for themselves, in spite of their circumstances. Here is Ángel Olivo, a human rights defender and local attorney describing the Matamoros encampment.
2: My name is Ángel Olivo Garcia. I always use both last names um, in honor of my mother and my father. I'm from Puerto Rico first. My background has always been being involved in whatever has to do with social um, justice, social components. I feel myself that I'm lucky enough to to have a lot of opportunities, so how can I make that change so that everyone has that opportunity? There's different aspect of how to describe the encampment itself. You know, physically, it's not a pretty sight. You have tents there. You have a lot of people, like, in a very small space.
1: There was no space even to walk around in that plaza. This
0: is my friend and attorney, Jody Goodwin. She started as a volunteer with Team Brownsville and became the first lawyer in Matamoros to provide legal aid to
1: migrants early in the Trump era. And then there was no other place for them to go, so then they started to go up onto the levee. And... That The levee got full and then they started to go down onto the banks of the river and um, it just kept growing and growing and growing because there was nowhere else for them to go. And I think people stayed right there near the border because they were afraid to go anywhere else. Matamoros is a very, very dangerous place for anyone. But it's even more dangerous for migrants just because of their vulnerability to be to be kidnapped.
0: But as dangerous as Matamoros was for the recently arrived, it was not without some glimmers of community, hope,
2: and dreams. The other thing that you cannot like perceive is the stories and it make the camp what it was. In between like this probably horror, they came together and build something. And then you have restaurants, you have tienditas, it's the little stores. So that gives like a sense of like, there's a lot going on, but there's community and people are looking for each other.
0: Many advocates on the U.S. side of the border had banded together under the banner of the Rio Grande Valley Welcoming Committee. Groups like Team Brownsville, Angry Tias y Abuelas, and Sidewalk School for Asylum Seekers What they all had in common was that they were people who wanted to make a difference and bring some sense of dignity to a completely undignified situation. Valle de Sueños will return. Hi, Laura here. Valle de Sueños is an independently produced podcast, so if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a rating. It really does help. And if you know someone you think might enjoy this story, send it their way really appreciate it. Now, back to the episode. The next morning, I made my way to the encampment. As I dropped my four quarters into the turnstile to cross the bridge and walk from Brownsville to Matamoros, I thought back to an earlier Zoom call I had with Biden White House officials and other government agencies. Something had clicked with the Biden folks. There was movement. The Matamoros encampment had come to symbolize the Trump administration's mistreatment of migrants, and there appeared to be political will to reverse course, to end remain in Mexico, and shut the Matamoros encampment down. We had agreed to meet by the dumpsters on the Mexican side of the border. I kept an eye out for the turquoise t-shirts I had quickly designed for our group. A white dove in the middle of the shirt bore the name Comité de Bienvenida, Welcoming Committee. We stood there waiting and wondering who would be able to cross today. Over months of working in the camp, we had grown close with many of the residents. We knew the impossible situations they were fleeing and held out hope that they'd soon be on their way to safety.
1: Here's Jody Goodwin. That very first group that crossed, there was a specific family. They had taken in a Cuban woman she had to flee Reynosa because her, her cousin was shot and killed by Border Patrol. And when I got there and I saw her name on the list, I was so relieved that she was going to be able to, to cross.
0: Around the camp, Jodi became affectionately nicknamed La Huerta Abogada, the blonde lawyer. And as the first group of asylum seekers gather, she led some of them in prayer. Meanwhile, I could see Sister Norma Pimentel from Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley directing people clipboard in hand. The irony of the lawyers leading prayer and the religious leader directing logistics was not lost on us. Sister Norma was no stranger to the ins and outs of coordinating mass efforts for migrants. For years, Catholic Charities has been right in the middle of humanitarian efforts, providing temporary shelter and assistance to thousands of people.
3: My name is Sister Norma Pimentel, and I am Director for Catholic Charities at the Rio Grande Valley. Catholic Charities is the charitable arm of the Catholic Church. And so what we do is respond to, in collaboration with other entities, in addressing the needs that we see here in our community, especially people who fall between the cracks that are not able to receive the assistance or help they need.
0: In 2020, Sister Norma was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in America. That same year, Pope Francis called her by name and essentially described her as the hand of God. But today, she stood in her simple Navy habit and open-toed sandals, anxiously watching the clock with the rest of us.
3: It was hard to truly take in the intensity of the moment, you know, and uh, what we were all part of, because we lived through the, all those months uh, with them and, and knew them and their struggles, their fears, all that their kids suffered, you know, and it all was at that moment of that that started on that first day and continued on for the rest of the week, was sort of a validation of humanity. Walking together, holding hands, crying It was beautiful.
0: The International Bridge is flanked by a pair of iconic red arches, and today they shone brightly under the sun. Everyone lined up in a specific order, and Sister Norma, Jody, myself, and UN humanitarian aid workers escorted the group across the bridge. Emotions ran high as I stood by a 12-year-old girl and her mother. When we began walking, a reporter with a camera jumped a small barrier and got in the little girl's face. What are you feeling now that you are being allowed into the U.S.? I pushed the camera away and urged the girl
1: to keep walking. We're crossing the bridge. We're actually going to be able to get these people out of significant danger. MPP really, really, really is ending. They're going to come out on the other side. This, This is happening. Like, it was, like, elation.
0: As we came to the end of the bridge, we could see the inspection area where another group of U.S. immigration officials were posted. For many of us growing up along the border, crossing into the United States was little more than a formality. You walk up, show your identification, answer a few boilerplate questions about bringing in fruits or vegetables, and be on your way. People would cross to eat dinner, fill prescriptions, get dental work, visit family, or go drinking. It was part of the regular rhythm of life. But for the immigrants crossing today, The border had become an impenetrable wall, not of metal and concrete, but of bureaucracy and procedure. Sister Norma was ahead of us and entered the inspection station with the first group of men, women and children. But as Jody and I approached, we were stopped dead in our tracks
1: and told no lawyers. It was so infuriating because having had so many calls and discussions with people, at the very top levels of the administration from the White House letting us know that we can be in the tents where they were processing people so that we could make sure that any issues that came up were you know, to be handled, to be able to be monitored, etc. Um, yeah, the troops on the ground, they never got that message. They were never going to get that message. And it also became apparent that there was nothing that the White House could do about that.
0: As attorneys, this set off all kinds of alarms and red flags. We had seen firsthand the horrible abuses the U.S. immigration system was capable of, especially when they thought no one was looking. These migrants had come so far and endured unimaginable difficulty to get to this point, and it felt like it could all come undone at the whim of an official inside a tent we could not enter. All we could do was wait and hope. While we waited, Jody and I did what any other St. Texan would do with some time to kill. We went to Whataburger. If you know, you know. We walked into the bus station with our greasy fries in the iconic bright orange and white paper bags. Rows of tables were set up with welcome signs near the parking spot where the bus was set to arrive with the first group of migrants. The fries turned cold and I suddenly lost my appetite as we waited for the immigration process to play out. Why was the process taking so long? What if the US officials changed their minds? I tossed the bag of fries into the trash bin and sat down next to Jody. I thought about the 27 people whose lives were in the hands of just a few border agents. The one woman whose cousin had just been shot and killed by a border patrol agent. I thought about the mother and daughter duo clinging to each other as they crossed the bridge. As anybody in immigration knows, sometimes the most painful part of the journey is the wait?
1: On the next episode of Valle de Sueños. And they had to make the choice, you know. Do we all stay here because he had already lost his case? Or do we let, you know, mom and daughter cross and leave dad in, in the camp?
0: Valle de Sueños is produced by Selena Peña, Charlie Vela, and me. Made in partnership with Drucha RGV. Edited and original theme composed by Charlie Vela. Written and hosted by me, Laura Peña. With artwork by Monica Lugo. Music in this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. For a full track listing, check the show notes. For more information about Valle de Sueños, please visit us online at vallasueños.com. With a
2: regular...